You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Pastor David. Um, that struck me at the very end of the prayer. Let go and choose to trust. Feels kind of paradoxical at the least, but so relevant and so connected with the sermon this morning. If you're here at Grace Community Church for the first time, uh, welcome. We are delighted that you have chosen to worship with us this day. And paradoxically or not coincidentally, providentially, God has chosen for you to be here this morning as well. So thank you for being here. We have our children with us this month, and we don't typically, a lot of the guys that are in here this month are in the back. Thank you, Miss Keisha, for providing coloring books and things uh, that will uh, help them stay focused during the service. But also, I want to say that last week, I asked you to write down scripture references if you're fifth grade down, or take notes and come and and, and show me afterwards. I can't tell you how impressive the notes were. So this morning might be a little more complex than last week, but take notes like crazy. I'd love to know what your third grade brain is thinking about this scripture. So once again, I would love to <clears throat> hear from you or see what you have put down at the end of the service. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the trip that Allison and I took uh, in June that, or July that was very much a part of her retirement and was also part of seeing family over to Europe. I realize that everybody gets to go to Europe to see family. I, I, I get that. And I think I mentioned this in passing a few weeks ago, but I want to share a little bit about something that happened over there. When Allison and I were in Switzerland last month, one of the highlights for us was a 45-minute to an hour visit to Labrie near the village of Sur Alain, high in the mountains, beautiful view. Labrie, which means refuge or shelter, is the ministry that was begun by Francis Anita the Schaefer, Schaefer in the 50s. Now, it's all over the world in different places now, not a whole lot of places, but the one in Switzerland still exists. It was almost like a commune. It was kind of like a commune before the hippies had communes in the 60s. People would come, young adults mostly, would come from all over the world. And they would stay at Labrie for several weeks or months. And they would work in the fields, uh, in the kitchen, cleaning the homes, serving one another. And then in the evenings and on the weekends, they would engage one another. They would engage Francis and Edith Schaefer and others in conversation about life and philosophy, particularly in matters of faith. And although there are tons of differences between Labrie and TVR, formerly known as Teen Valley Ranch, I tried for 20 years to change the name, just couldn't, it didn't work. Lots of differences, but I modeled as best as possible TVR on Labrie. I knew about it early in my years there. I wanted to create an atmosphere where people could come in, feel comfortable, relaxed enough 
really kind of what David said. Letting go and choosing life. Choosing God's ways as opposed to the ways we are naturally inclined. Labrie was exactly as I had imagined it to be some 40, 50 years, no, 60 years ago now, 60, 70 years ago. Someone would talk to us for a few minutes and they say, look, I, I'm sorry, I, I would love to continue our conversation and give you a tour, but I have to go work in the kitchen. Alexis will take you around. Our time there was brief, but it was extremely meaningful because it was at least 40 years worth of my heart that had been in that place and never expected to see. Francis Schaeffer, a Presbyterian minister, was well ahead of his time. He was teaching and preaching and writing to an audience that would only understand the wisdom and insight that he shared some 50 years later in a postmodern era. You can't believe how abruptly the shift was between the modern era in the late 80s and the postmodern era in the early 90s, if you think about such things. Schaefer already understood that the West is far more akin to the Greco-Roman world that we think about a lot when we're in Scripture, far more akin to it than we could have ever imagined. Perhaps it is why 1 Corinthians is so relevant to us today. We see our tendencies, if not our actions and attitudes, in the Corinthians. If you're new to grace, it will be helpful to know that we are in a series in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. As of this morning, we have a limited number of of journals for 1 Corinthians. We've been trying to get them all along. We have a limited number that will be on the next steps table when you go out. If you get up and go get one, deacons are already planning to wrestle you to the ground and take it from you. So don't get up during the service. Well, okay, we won't do that. But <clears throat> So far in our study, we've, we've worked through five and a half chapters of 1 Corinthians, but since August is family worship month, and since the material in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 6 and all of 7 is at least PG-13 material, we're skipping ahead this morning to chapter 8, and we'll come back to chapter 6 and 7 in late September. Hopefully, we'll be through chapter 10 at that particular point. Uh, this can be done more easily in 1 Corinthians than it can in other New Testament books of the Bible. And here's why. A, a really solid foundation, a gospel cross-centered foundation has been laid in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Especially the first two and then chapter 3, somewhat the same and 4 is kind of a, a summary of it all and explaining why it all matters. But there's this solid foundation of 1 Corinthians that's laid in the first four chapters and then... Paul addresses one issue after another, after another, and they're all sitting squarely on this foundation. If the, if, if the foundation is not there, there's really no cause for talking about these issues the way that we do. So, today's text is from 1 Corinthians 8. 1 through 13, and the title of today's message is The Weak and the Strong Getting Along. 
The Apostle Paul used the issue of meat that had been sacrificed to idols to establish a principle of the Christian life within the church community that serves us well today in multiple areas where we might disagree with one another. Do you agree with your brothers and sisters here at Grace about everything? No. And there are lots of areas where we might disagree. Some seem to create a little more tension than others. But how do we deal with those when someone thinks this is okay and the other thinks not okay? Well, this text is going to start us in that direction. Before I read the text, though, allow me to give a little bit of background. In the first century, there were quite a few temples built in honor of the various gods that were worshipped in the Roman Empire. Animals were sacrificed for worship in these temples, and the meat went in three directions. Actually, the meat was butchered before it was used. There were three different ways. Uh, Some of it was burnt up in an offering to the god. Other of it was cooked on site, and it was either eaten in a solemn service, it's part of worship, or because they had all this meat, these temples... And there were lots of them in Corinth. So this might have been an attraction to get more people to your temple. Had an annex. And it was like, you know, one of those annexes that you see today on a, on a restaurant. But this housed only the restaurant. And you could get a meat and three really cheap, you know. And the rest of it was taken to the market before it was cooked. Taken to the market And it was sold. Almost all meat sold in the markets had originated at the temples. And in some people's minds, it was associated with pagan worship. Now, many of the Corinthian church members had participated in pagan temple services in the past. In fact, this was early in the church history of the church. So a lot of them had just been saved in the last two to three years. And eating meat or purchasing and eating meat that had been butchered at the temple was troubling for their consciences. The Apostle Paul acknowledged that these were weak Christians because everyone should know that meat was just meat. And meat offered to gods that do not exist was no different than meat that had not been offered. Idols. Does that make sense? It's like, okay, here's the meat in the market. Yeah, but came from the temple. And the temple is the house of what? Zeus or Athena. Do they exist? Well, no, but it's kind of like idol worship. Now, I will have to say this. This is not the last word. When we get to chapter 10, he's going to develop this a lot more. But right now... He's saying, we know that this meat that's been a part of temple activities is no big deal because those gods don't even exist. And so if you think this has to be a no on my list, then you are considered a weak Christian. Paul identified those who knew the truth 
that it ain't no thing that this, this meat had been offered to idols. As strong Christians, mature Christians. And by the way, that, that required sophisticated reasoning. In a sense, Paul's argument is a criticism of the weak. Really? You say no to almost everything. Don't you realize? And so you would think that Paul's argument would be, you weak Christians need to grow up. That's not at all his argument. Not at all. Let's read the text and then we'll continue this study. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the whole chapter. Now, in Hebrews you see, so then, and at the beginning of all these chapters. Occasionally you'll see now. But Paul is like, okay, now let's talk about something else. We, we've talked about church discipline. We've talked about um, taking believers taking one another to court. We've talked about other issues that we'll get to in late September. And now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that All of us possess knowledge. These quotes indicate that this was a saying of the day. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone Loves God, if you've got a King James, probably God is in italics. It's not in the original text. It really reads, if anyone loves, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged eating in that annex? Will he not be encouraged (coughs) if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person (coughs) is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers 
and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ, O ye strong. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you be seated? Now, I'm, I'm going to guess that when you think about strong Christians versus weak Christians, that you think maybe a little differently than we've just been presented here, and you're like, you may be like, I'm not sure what was just presented here. Let's, we'll work through this and hopefully try to make sense of it. Uh, you, 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 don't, you have maybe a different understanding of who a weak Christian is and who a strong Christian is. Now, if I were to give those, say, 55 years and up, a sheet of paper and, you, and ask you to draw a line on it and you uh, make a, a separation between weak Christians and strong Christians, and if those who are under 55 would take your phone, build a document, you know, so we're all on the, we're all doing the same thing regardless, right? Strong Christians, weak Christians. What are you going to put where? Would you identify strong Christians as those who are committed to a daily quiet time, who are faithful in church attendance, who would share Christ with others? Certainly those would all be characteristics of a strong Christian, but it could be characteristics of a weak Christian as well. Uh, would you agree that a strong Christian avoids questionable activities. She's not likely to consume alcohol in any form, and he never watches movies that are beyond his standards. On most of our list, the strong Christian is known for the good things that he does and the bad things that she doesn't do. The weak Christian, on the other hand, well, this person has problems. He's inconsistent. In church attendance, she's easily drawn back into old habits that do not glorify the Lord. The voice of the Holy Spirit seems to be diminished in the weak Christian's heart and mind. But if someone says, party, the weak Christian hears and is in response. But is our interpretation of weak and strong consistent with what Scripture presents? Tim Keller provides helpful instruction on weak and strong. This is a long quote, but it's well worth our consideration. Quote, As far as Paul is concerned, your conscience is weak if it's not deeply oriented to grace and the love of God. You're a, you have a weak conscience if you're constantly feeling accused and condemned. Here's who the weak people are. The weak people are people who are temperamentally tight and who need everything to be evaluated. What that means is weak Christians hate gray areas. They want to know what are the right things and what are the wrong things. What is the Christian thing? And what is the non-Christian thing? What are the good things and the bad things? In every area of life, they won't know gray areas. 
They want to know exactly what's right or wrong. They want constant evaluation. Everything has to be evaluated. Up, down, good, bad, in, out. They have no tolerance for intolerance or for ambiguity. On the other hand, you have the strong. And Paul talks about the strong. For example, in Romans 15.1, by the way, a companion passage that we may get to, Romans 15.1 through 7. Once again, just like so many other things we find, it's presented with a little more grace in Romans 15 than it is in 1 Corinthians. Um, but in Romans, uh, for example, in Romans 15, Paul says, <clears throat> we who are strong, So he's identifying somewhat with the strong. The strong are people with knowledge. Look at verse 4. It says, so then, what about eating food sacrificed to idols? We know that an idol is nothing at all. So what about it? The strong are people who are not superstitious like the folks with all the scruples in Corinth. And they are not legalistic or moralistic like the people with all the scruples in Rome. They are broad-minded people. These are people who are temperamentally flexible. These are people who are more well-informed theologically. These are people who do not need to make a lot of evaluation. They don't mind ambiguity. They don't mind gray areas. They don't feel like everything has to be evaluated up or down, good or bad. Close quote. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And a mindful. That's a pretty good summary, I would say. And once again, I'm going to say something that I say too much. It's just one of those things that it, it, it fits so well. In my old hippie days, before I trusted Christ, I listened to rock music in the late 60s and the early 70s. It was called classic rock, hard rock. Well, it's called classic rock now, but then it was hard rock or acid rock, underground music, you know. And we all love to be different together, you know. (laughs) I went to as many concerts as my parents would allow. So do you see the problem of being a hippie and living at home? I mean, this is is a problem. Even so, over two years, I, I, I probably went to 25 to 30 concerts. And when the Lord saved me one month before I graduated from high school, no one had to tell me that I I should no longer listen to John Lennon singing, Imagine There's No Heaven, It's Easy If You Try, No Hell Below Us, Above Us Only Sky. Look, this is not one of those ride rocks. Don't listen to that, okay? When they turn it on in the Olympics, if you don't turn it off, just go, make sure your kids know. This is just wrong. These are wrong. I I didn't need to to hear Jethro Tull saying, fools worship their God in the sky. Or Emerson Lake and Palmer saying, can you believe God makes you breathe? How could he lose six million Jews? You know what I did before I even knew that record burnings were cool? I did that because I can't let anybody else hear this record. I just knew. There are some things that you learn very quickly. I can't do like I did in the past. So during those 
first 15 to 20 years of my life as a follower of Jesus, when I would hear the music of my high school years, I was taken back to those pre-conversion days, and those were not righteous days for me. Everything in my heart and mind would pull against God, and I'm like, I can't, I cannot listen to that music. So I didn't listen to much secular music. I, okay, I confess, I listened to John Denver, you know, but it's, that wasn't Led Zeppelin at Dorton Arena, you know. That was different, but even still, pulling against God. John Denver very much, and everybody that's not singing or at least searching like Jackson Brown and, and Bono is pulling hard against God. I listen to it now. Not an awful lot, but I listen to music. I'm fine with music. God gifted some people to do things exceptionally well. And they don't have to be Christian for us. But I couldn't handle that in those first 15, 20 years. I was a weak Christian. Didn't mean I was a less of a Christian. I was a young Christian. I was immature. I didn't have all of this understanding in my heart and mind. And there's a lot that I will not listen to now because of the lyrics. So, was I a weak Christian because I, I didn't listen to, to that music? It, it, some ways, yes, but it's part of the process, right? And it's okay. Well, what about an alcoholic who has been delivered from the devastating effects of alcohol? Is he weak because he won't take a meal in a bar? What happens when believers invite him or her and their family over for a meal and they want to serve wine? Is the one who says no to all alcohol because of past experiences a weak Christian? Although the Bible doesn't prohibit the consumption of alcohol, even as it condemns drunkenness. No, I think it's a wise Christian. But all of this comes into play. What about someone who's not an alcoholic and says, well, is wine okay? Well, some consciences won't allow people in any way to drink wine. Others are okay with it. Let's do a quick run-through of the text without trying to say, oh, let's, let's start identifying people. That's, a, that's one of the things Paul is saying here. Quit trying to just make your list and identify. You, you guys need to learn to get along. So we'll do a quick run-through of our text. Paul begins in verse 1 by challenges what, challenging what many saw as a strength. Knowledge, remember, from the first few chapters how these people were trying to say, I'm impressing God with my knowledge. And in fact, I know a lot about God. And Paul says, you don't know anything. You don't know squat about God unless God opens your heart and mind and fills it. And you have the spirit of God in you. You understand things that others don't understand. And you grow in your understanding and knowledge. But if you are resting on your knowledge, you can become Puffed up. That's quite a description, isn't it? We use the same one. You've got a big head because you said so many things about him. Well, you don't even have to say things about him. He, th he thinks he knows so much, he's got a big head. <clears throat> what knowledge is he talking about? He's 
talking about solid Christian doctrine, as we're going to see in a moment. But, but for now, in verse 2, Paul says essentially, if you choose knowledge over loving your brother or sister in Christ, you don't, you don't know what you think you know. You're not quite as smart as you think you are. Do you see the similarities with our day? Openness in one's associations and activities based on knowledge that others don't have is highly valued today just as it was then. But our knowledge does not give us the right to act in unloving ways, especially, not to anybody, but especially to our Christian brothers and sisters. In verses 4 through 6, we have the equivalent of a creed or a doctrinal statement for, yes, 4 to 6. There is only one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. It is not as the pagans thought, our God is better than your God, or as we think, my group is better than your group. Our way of thinking is better than your way of thinking. It is that there is only one God. Next week we're going to talk about, from 1 Corinthians 9, Lord willing, how important it is for us to understand the ways of God. And, and that comes with mature thinking well beyond just a verse here or there used to try to get your help for the moment, which there's nothing wrong with. I was going to say it next week. I may as well say it today. Uh, yesterday, I was down by the lake close to our house, on the phone, texting like good senior citizens do, very slowly. Uh, but uh, all of a sudden, I hear the, a rustle in the little area. And I looked up and there was an unaccompanied pit bull. And he spent about five minutes around me. Now, it may have been two and a half. I'm it felt like he's still there right now. Um, I was searching for a verse, I'm telling you. I was looking for a verse. But oddly enough, my mind was more drawn to the ways of God. But it's only a recent thing. And I'll, I'll develop that more next week so you get to hear that story again. I'm not going to say anything about a need for change of... No, no, I won't even say that. Change of clothes uh, after, the, after that experience. He finally went on. He, I mean, he sniffed the bench. He sniffed me. And I'm thinking, Phil Wilson was right. I should have Mace with me, you know. So... Verse 7, not everyone has the same level of understanding that, that strong Christians have. It was only a short time ago, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, that the young believers among you took the eating of meat offered to idols very seriously. They felt connected with the idols. And they are weak or immature Christians. And you who like to emphasize your Christian liberty, neither eating such meat nor abstaining from eating, you need to understand makes any difference in your relationship with God. There is a strong possibility, though, 
that the use or abuse of your Christian freedom could become a stumbling block to a fellow believer who is not matured enough to see and understand all that you see and understand. Verse 10 is, is complicated. Paul is stating that if a weaker brother sees a more mature believer eating in the annex, he's sitting down with his meal. The weak Christian is going to say two things. One, how is that not worshiping idols? Well, if it's not, maybe I could do that. And then she does it and her mind's a mess from her conscience. It's not easy to make sense of it when you're a young or a weak not a derogatory term, just, just identify if you're a weak Christian. Paul is using this as a hypothetical. <laughs> what if you see someone sitting down at the restaurant? Because in chapter 10, he's going to condemn the practice and say, you can't do it. You just can't do it. It's too associated with the idol. But he's saying, <clears throat> if you brag about, I don't, I don't care about meat. Man, I got a good sale on this. This is a pretty good ribeye, you know, and I got a good sale on it in the market. It's the same in a weak Christian's mind as you sitting down at the restaurant or even being in the temple worshiping. How serious is it to exercise your freedom when it causes your brother to sin, <laughs> it is wounding the conscience of one for whom Christ died. And if that's not enough, at the end of verse 12, you sin against Christ. This is a serious sin. Paul's conclusion in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I'll be a vegetarian for the rest of my life, lest I make my brother stumble. Wow. We'll close with five points of application, which truly are points of review, and some are a review of an earlier review point. But it's the best way for us to get this in our hearts and minds. First, we'll begin with this. Do not characterize believers as weak or strong based on what they allow as acceptable attitudes and behavior. It's important to distinguish. We've already talked about Let's do say it again. Important to distinguish between a biblical view of strong and weak and the cultural views of strong or weak that bleed into the church. As I said last week, we're all legalists at heart. And the only cure is to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The more we grow as believers, the more we should appreciate the beautiful blessings of creation that perhaps we misused in the past. But now add color and depth to our lives and to our understanding of God and his creation order. It's a lot of beauty in this world that weak Christians miss. But strong Christians must be very careful that their partaking of those blessings don't hurt the weak Christians. We grow in this way even as what is sin 
is clearer to us all the time. Like I said, when I first got saved, I, I said, I can't, I can't go here. You know what's right or wrong. Paul says it over and over like, come on. You know better than this. You know this is sin. But there are a lot of gray areas that we don't know, and that's what he's dealing with. It's surely a sign of my own weakness when I admit that guilt has been a frequent companion during my days as a believer. What do you think a weak Christian would think when an unaccompanied pit bull is sniffing him up? Have I sinned and now I'm going to be punished? That's what we think, right? We tend to think like that. It's better now. It's far better now. But my doubts can get in the way of understanding. The truth of our text is not meant to create a list of what is acceptable and what is not. But rather it reminds us of the principle found In our second point, mature believers always have the greater obligation. It is the way of love. Look, trying to get our heads around all these difficult concepts in 1 Corinthians 8, we can miss the simplicity of truth that is delivered in such beautiful ways in the text. It's easy to miss the simple and profound truths that Paul stresses. Love, of course, is the greatest of these, and he will say so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13. And don't you know, as he's writing chapter 13, he's thinking back to this argument. He's thinking, this is one of the ways that we show love to one another and prefer others above ourselves. There's a strong possibility that those with whom, that those whom Paul identified as strong were wealthy And those who were weak were not. Education, understanding, openness, they're all often associated with wealth. And these qualities can produce the puffed up sort of pride that Paul condemns repeatedly in 1 Corinthians. So here's a question. Do you use your wealth, as we talked about last week, to defraud Or dominate those who are not as wealthy as you and to become more rich at their expense? No, of course not, we hope. But are you tempted to use your emotional superiority or your reasoning skills or your social awareness or in other words, your knowledge to pressure others into your way of thinking? Love always takes the responsibility upon oneself to care for others. Who has the greater responsibility, parents or children? Who has a greater responsibility, husband or wife? Who has a greater responsibility, the strong or the weak? The answer is yes. Love always starts right here. Who is it that gets on your last nerve? I'm sad to say this. Well, I'm sad. You're going to be sad to hear it. Love requires you to defer, to prefer, and to favor him or her above yourself. This can be very, very difficult. Next, the strong should help bring the weak to maturity. There's a sense in this passage, and I read so much. I read less this week. I will 
confess tonight than I do a lot of weeks. I was frantically trying to find it. Usually I highlight, but Anthony Thistleton was saying at some point there's a sense in which uh, the language, the Greek, the original language, Paul is saying, encouraging the strong to bring the weak alongside of them and help bring them along into maturity. <clears throat> he urges them to gently lead the weak instead of doing what the strong are inclined to do and use their superior positions in society and in the church as a means of control. Now, here's the thing about the logic of the strong. It's airtight. It's not the point, is it? And it's biblical. It's theologically sophisticated. But the strong will only be able to bring the weak into maturity if they are sensitive to the struggles with, with, with which the conscience that young believers often endure. If they, if they get it, like, okay, I understand. Maybe you have or have not been in that place, but I understand, and I'm, I'm willing to be patient. Maybe a good way to help a younger believer is to go through a book of the Bible with him. It's an interesting thing. Well, no, I'll wait till next week. I'm already thinking about next week. That's why I keep wanting to say it. Make sure that your study is gospel-saturated as most mature believers would understand. If you, if you have a really good understanding of the gospel, you're strong. You're mature, uh, at least in that one area, at, the, at least in that. And that's the most important area. But So make sure your, your presentation is gospel-saturated, but also... Make sure that patience is extended in equal measure alongside your instruction in righteousness. And one way to ensure this is explained in our next point. The cross finds its way into almost all matters pertaining to Christian. Well, I probably could just leave almost out. The cross is always a part of the teaching of Scripture. The lessons of the cross with which Paul introduced this letter are still prominent in my thinking as I work my way and try to bring you along with me through this New Testament book that was originally a letter written to a church. Paul had to deal with such egregious behavior that this letter can feel like legalism, but it's anything but. Next week, it'll all, it helps, it'll help bring it together. <clears throat> the shadow of the cross finds its way into Paul's instruction over and over and over. Do not destroy your brother with your freedom, a brother for whom Christ died. Jesus died for our sins because we could never keep the law and thus make ourselves presentable to God. Our only hope for eternity is to repent of our sins and to cry out to the one who gave his blood, who gave his life and his blood so that we might be saved. He died in our, our place. So be careful, weaker brother, not to make the Christian life only a list of do's and don'ts. Be careful, Stronger sister, not to make a mockery of the cross by wearing your Christian freedom and your openness on your sleeve and thus create doubts and shame in your weaker brother and sister. 
Last, my right to choose must be exercised for the welfare of my brothers and sisters. There's some real, I'm, I'm really amused with 1 Corinthians, the way that Paul writes this letter. He's writing this letter in such a way that not everybody's going to get his sarcasm. And the ways that he's making his arguments. But you know who, who will get it? The people that need to get it. And it's a bit ironic when Paul, well, it's not ironic, it's, it's interesting. When Paul warns those with knowledge not to abuse their positions of power. In verse 9, he acknowledges that believers have rights. Yes, as a Christian, there's a lot of freedom. But as he says to the Galatians, Brothers, you have been called to freedom, and we read last week, only do not use your freedom as an occasion to the flesh. So believers have rights, but then he immediately warns them not to hurt their brothers who lack the same level of understanding with which they are blessed. In verse 13, he says that he's willing to give up his rights altogether. And the protection from such abuse to where the strong abuse the weak spiritually is to always choose to help their fellow believers who are weak lest the strong cause them to stumble. And this will require giving up some of your God-given rights. And this is not easy. It's why I often encourage you to reject the notion that you deserve this or that. And to remember, and oh man, was I convicted when I wrote it. The foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the son of man often did not know where he would lay his head at night. This is the cost of discipleship. And one of the things that helps us. Take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him daily. Is to recognize that our hope is not in this life. Rest and ease will come in eternity. But even there, I suspect in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a great deal of work and meaningful service. If you live your life for your own pleasure and benefit, then you have missed the message of the gospel, you have missed the impact of the cross. You know little of the cross of Christ. Believe me, I say, I'm, I'm saying this as we. If, on the other hand, you have grown in your walk with the Lord, you will likely reach the ironic position that many things you used to find acceptable now are okay. But you got to give them up because they're not okay with others. Kind of strange, isn't it? If God calls you to give them up permanently, is it really a sacrifice? Our time at Labrie last month reminded Alice and me in, 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 me in tangible ways. That we are blessed to serve one another and to serve other believers as those in the same way those who were staying at Labrie served in the kitchen and in the fields. 
And in the same way that Christ put off his outer garments, he took a towel, a servant's towel, wrapped it around his waist, and he washed the feet of his disciples. That's what we do when as strong believers, we give preference to the weak. Amen. I will pray, and then Jim McLaughlin, chairman of our elders, will come with an announcement. Our Father, um, we are a broken people and we don't like it. And consequently, we try hard for this life to make sense. And the more we know, the easier it is to manipulate what we know to our own service rather than to the service of others. But you've called us to take up our cross daily. And there's not a whole lot of serving yourself when you're taking up your cross. And so, Father, we pray that you would infuse our hearts and minds with such grace. And as we understand what Christ has done for us, we will serve others in the ways that you have served us. Not perfectly. Christ in you, the hope of glory. May our identity be in him. May our service be for him for others. And we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.